0: Sometimes people think porn filmmakers are all just amateurs with a camera in a hotel room. And sometimes they're right. But today's audience should know that during the start of the porn industry, there were real artists working back then. All of whom opened the doors to a place where cinema had not been. Jack DeVoe, Peter DeRome, Jerry Douglas, Wakefield Poole, and Tom DeSimone. Tom DeSimone is the director of a string of 70s and 80s cult films like Hell Night, and reform schoolgirls, as well as various television shows like Freddy's Nightmares. But Simoni was also a major figure in the developing years of gay pornography as a film genre. Often credited as Lancer Brooks, Simoni's porn films were plotted, story-driven, and high-quality narrative films that inevitably led to his entrance into mainstream film. By the time Tom Desimonyi made classic gay porn movie The Idol, he had already had almost a decade of experience shooting gay porn. I know the word classic is overused, but it really is the best way to describe The Idol. Widely regarded as the best gay porno film ever made, The Idol is a coming-of-age film about a high school jock who has a love affair with one of the other guys at his school. Sounds pretty straightforward enough, right? Jack Wrangler was a -a one-of-a-kind model who exploded onto the gay adult entertainment scene in the 1970s. He was a rugged, handsome man whose openness about his homosexuality made him a symbol for self-confidence for many gay men. He had steely blue eyes, a muscled physique, and could barely keep his shirt on. What started out as a gig go-go dancing in Hollywood led him to a life in the entertainment industry both in front and behind the camera for both gay and straight porn companies and also a life with many surprising turns. In this episode, we're going to celebrate Tom DeSimoni, a gay porn director turned Hollywood filmmaker who helped develop and contributed to the early years of gay porn. Simone's film The Idol, a coming-of-age film that involves real dialogue and genuine acting as the lead character comes to terms with his sexuality. And Jack Wrangler, a 70s gay porn icon turned cabaret producer who was a legend in his time and whose stardom coincided with the gay liberation movement, making him a role model for many men. This is Demystifying Gay Porn, my name is Nike Grande, and if you watch gay porn, I've definitely helped you get off. Tom DeSimone was born in Massachusetts to Italian-American parents in Newton, a suburb of Boston. His father was a chef who owned two restaurants, and his mother was a beautician who eventually owned and operated two salons. DeSimone grew up with a brother and a sister, and attended parochial school before moving to Weston, Massachusetts. He was quiet, shy, and dabbled in art projects. When he got older, Disamone became interested in photography, which eventually led to his love of movies. At the age of 10, Simone was struck with rheumatic fever and was bedridden for months, not being able to attend his local movie house where he would spend a considerable amount of time watching films. His father felt sorry for him and bought him an eight mm film projector, a screen, films, and cartoons that he can set up next to his bed. Desmond's fascination with movies convinced him that when he grew up, he was going to get into movie making one way or another. His parents motivated him by buying him film accessories, and he would make his own home movies using siblings and friends as actors. After high school, DeSimone got his B.A. at Emerson College in filmmaking before moving to California and attending UCLA Film School, where he did graduate work in film. After graduation, DeSimone got a job as an assistant editor on a small independent film through UCLA's Placement Center for Graduated Students, where he would catalog film cuts and keep notes for the editor. After film school, it wasn't really easy to break into the film industry, and film students weren't being sought after. He was briefly assigned to direct a film called Terror in the Jungle, but he left the production due to an array of problems. At the same time Disamone started waiting tables, adult film theaters started popping up everywhere. The Park Theater in downtown LA opened, and they were screening porn loops. Someone then suggested to Disamone that he can make some money if he tried to make a film. He contacted the Park Theater and got the name of owner Shan Sales and landed an interview. Disamoni went ahead and shot a loop filled with sexual activity, showed it to the owner, and Simoni was hired on the spot. The owner made him a studio with cutting rooms, a soundstage, and anything he needed to turn out features for his theater. The first film he would make was called The Collection. Tom DeSimone's The Collection is about a sadomasochist psychopath who kidnaps young men, keeps them prisoner, and uses them as his own personal sex slave. I know. Fucking creepy. This is 1970. Art is not imitating life yet. It was the first homosexual feature film with sync dialogue, an original soundtrack, and a plot that went beyond just sex scenes. The film was produced by DeSimone and his partner at the time who went by the name of Max Blue, who also happened to be in the part of the collector when the actor who was meant to play the role dropped out. Disamoney at that time was making films under the name Lancer Brooks, a name he says he totally made up on the spot. After meeting with distributors who shopped his films to theaters, their advice was to use the same names consistently. If theaters like the product, they can use that to negotiate for more money. But hold on, let's get back to the collection. The film was seized during screenings in Los Angeles, leaving theaters with nothing to show. So one thing that can be noted from watching Tom DeSimone's films is that he does a great job working with porn models with no experience. Although he admits it was challenging, he recalls blocking all the action in his films in advance and breaking down the script scene by scene and even indicating where the dialogue would be in close-up, two shots, or masters. He would film short sections working with the models on just a few lines. Many times the actors would be blown away when they came to see the screening of the film. By this time, Simone had a string of hits that were all over theaters around the country in the early to mid-1970s. He had built a name on the back of Lancer Brooks, but was also directing titles under his real name as well. In 1975, Simoni came to New York City shopping for a theater to show his new film, Eroticus. He met a man named Jack DeVoe, another important person during the early days of gay porn. DeVoe was running the 55th Street Playhouse and riding on the success of Boys in the Sand, but was looking for movies to follow it up. Simoni and DeVoe began working on projects together. DeVoe was inexperienced as a filmmaker, but wanted to give it a try. The Simone spent a summer in New York working on several projects and came back to L.A. with The Idol, produced under DeVoe's company Hand in Hand. I think what I was trying to impress here upon the audience that it's, it's good for, or it's okay for two men to have emotional sexual experience besides just a physical sexual experience. Uh, too many times in these films or even in life, guys come together, they click, they have sex, and then that's the end of it, you know. Tom Simone has the rare pleasure of being one of only a handful of gay porn directors to have mainstream success. DeSimone was a very well-known writer, producer, and director of gay porn at the same time Casey Donovan and Wakefield Poole were in the business. He was prolific, having made 80 hardcore films at that point. So neither him or his films were obscure, and yet DeSimone still managed to have success in Hollywood. Simone attributes that to the vast differences between his films and the films of many of his peers, saying, in some instances, the reviews of my films often compared them to Hollywood films. I was known for coaxing believable performances out of guys with no acting training whatsoever. I did all my own editing and made sure I scored the films with appropriate background music. In some cases, I also did the camera work to be sure that I was putting up on the screen what I wanted my vision to be. I studied the Hollywood classics for years, and I also had a master's degree from UCLA film school. My being gay had nothing to do with my work. It had always been my ambition to work in maintaining films, and making porn was just a stepping stone for me. A chance to practice my art until the big break came. And that practice paid off. A gay producer rented a porno film that Simoni had directed and was so impressed with the film, he tracked Simoni down and introduced him to two other producers. Those two producers financed Simoni's first Hollywood film. Tom Disamone now had producers to fund his first film, a sex comedy called Chatterbox. Originally a straight porn film, Simone planned to shoot called Lips. The film is about a girl with a talking vagina. The producer of Chatterbox, Bruce Curtis, was also a friend of Linda Blair. He came across the script for Hell Night and talked both Linda Blair and Tom DeSimone into making the film. DeSimone also worked on a cult classic called Reformed School Girls. I remember watching this movie when I was definitely too young to be watching this movie. However, it left an imprint in my memory and I was pleasantly surprised when I found out this one was made by Tom DeSimone. At the time Tom DeSimoni started working in the gay porn industry, everyone working underground was always paranoid. Actors were never told where the location was beforehand, and when they were finally taken to where it was, they were not allowed to make phone calls for fear of a bust. By the time Tom DeSimoni crossed into the mainstream, people were disputing who made all the gay porn classics, since they were made anonymously and credit was easy to take. Over the span of his porn filmmaking career, which included bisexual films, Tom DeSimone worked with many important contributors to the developing industry, including performers, filmmakers, and studios. Tom DeSimone was one of a small number of individuals from the porn industry who successfully moved into working in mainstream film and television. And that was the beginning of another long and exciting career. Six feature films and 160 television shows later, Tom DeSimone is currently retired, and looks back at all of his work with pride. Fun fact. If you were a child or young during the 1980s, you would probably remember the TV show Freddy's Nightmares, a short-running TV series in the Kruger universe. Although not starring Robert Unglund's Freddy Krueger in every episode due to the show's budget, Freddy's Nightmare was an anthology horror show featuring scary stories. Tom DiCimoni directed 11 episodes over the series' two-season run. Disamoni loved the experience of working on the series, saying it was tons of fun, lots of blood and body parts on the set every day, bursting bloody bags, broken bones, heads getting lopped off. It was a laugh a minute every day. The idol was the brainchild of Jack DeVoe, who at the time was head of Hand in Hand Films in New York. DeVoe wrote a three-page outline that needed to be fleshed out in order to be a film. When it came time to write the script, the person who made that happen was Salmoneo's lover at the time. After it was completed, DeVoe sent the script to Tom DeSimoni, and he wrote the screenplay. Up next, the casting. Casting in the early days of porn was very hard. Very often, casting agents and directors and producers had to find people off the street or go to bars and proposition people. Sometimes the models were hustlers who needed to make money. Sometimes the models were Vice Squad members posing as models. At that time, undercover agents would do anything to get people they considered pandering. All they had to do was find out where you were and prove that you were shooting a porn film. The Simone always treated his models well no matter what the case was. They were paid to perform a job. The job, however, is more than showing up, dropping your pants, having hot sex, getting paid and going home. In the early days of porn filmmaking, most models did not realize how much work actually goes into making a film, and it was not uncommon for actors to not finish a picture. The breakout star of The Idol was a first-time model named Kevin Redding. During the shoot, Redding was dating the roommate of another model, Nick Rogers. He was also right out of high school and working as a waiter at a gay bar. Reading was reluctant at first to make the film, but he came in to speak with Disamoni and felt secure enough. Redding was approached by studios after the idol, even Disamoni himself. However, he made it very clear that he never wanted to do another picture again. He was afraid if he did another film, he would be just another porn star. By the time it came to shooting the last scene of the film, Reading had all but checked out. The model was really into Reading, but Redding was tired and busy. Redding would later reminisce in an interview that during that time he began to feel guilt for agreeing to do the film due to having grown up Southern Baptist. He also recalled being scared to death police would come in and raid the shoots. The Idol was shot on weekends to be considerate of models who often had other jobs. The rest of the cast outside of Nick Rogers consisted of mostly models who were part of this shoot and did not make any other films. If you've seen the movie, many of the notable shots, let's say the ones at school, were stolen shots. The crew grabbed what they could because they didn't have permits, because nobody gets permits for gay porn shoots. The same goes for the beach scenes that were shot on early mornings and the cemetery scenes as well. Another one of the idol's iconic scenes is when Kevin Redding's character shares a massage scene with the coach. The Simoni describes the set in an interview saying Kevin Reddy was good and hard and ready to go through with the entire scene. The dialogue was shot first and then came the sex scene. Nick Rogers, Reading scene partner, was having trouble in the erection department. This continued for the day and it turned into a long, grueling shoot, even after many of the models on set tried their hardest, no pun, to help Nick out. Finally, Nick told Disamoni that he wasn't going to be able to do it. He did, however, promise to come back. A week after wrapping the film shoot, Disamoni rented a massage table and shot the scene in his garage. He got under the table and shot the money shot he needed for the film. So what was initially supposed to be a sex scene turned into a different scene and was finished on a completely different set. Not bad for a pretty popular scene. The Idol begins with credits over a picture of Kevin Rudding's character, Gary Evans. When the camera pulls out. We see the image was a newspaper with a heading that reads College athlete dies in auto accident A young man on a bike, Terry Walker Picks up the newspaper and is noticeably upset We then go into a flashback of Gary Evans From Terry's lusty recollection Afterwards, Terry passes by the cemetery where the burial is taking place There, we meet a crying Karen Who now begins to reminisce and leads us into another flashback Where Gary tries to get into Karen's pants She's just not one of those girls And if it's so easy with the others Why do you always take me out? Because I love you, bitch. Karen leaves Gary with a mighty case of blue balls that he will now have to take care of himself. On her way home, Karen almost runs over Terry, who is out catching fireflies. Once Karen leaves, Terry finds Gary pleasing himself in his car and proceeds to watch from the bushes. After Gary is done, we flash forward to the burial, where Chuck, one of Gary's teammates, remembers exercising on the beach. And also explains the pleasure of having a guy play with your junk when your girlfriend doesn't put out. The film then takes us to a scene in a communal shower where Chuck is getting a bro job and has sex with another guy in the showers while Gary watches. Then Terry, you know the guy on the bike, happens to show up yet again. When we flash forward to the cemetery we now see a man we find out is Gary's coach who is played by adult film star Nick Rogers. The coach is seen hugging Gary's parents Then, in the next flashback, which I'm a bit confused about because I'm not sure if it belongs to the coach or Terry, the bike creep. Gary is getting a massage from his coach, which leads to relieving some sexual tension. Keep in mind, the whole time, Terry is watching the coach work out these kinks through a crack in a window-paned door, which means anyone could be watching this grown man blow his star teen athlete. What? Different times. After the coach is done relieving Gary, we cut back to the cemetery. Friends and family have begun to disperse, and we meet one of Gary's cousins, who flashes back to a skinny-dipping pool excursion. While there, I found it interesting that Gary talks about what happened with the coach with his cousin, and from the sounds of the conversations, let's just say I'm glad this is all just a fantasy, a hot, hot fantasy in a different time. And the two have really hot, passionate sex while stoned. Back at the cemetery... We see all of Gary's family and friends leave. Terry is all alone. He gets up from the tree he was hiding behind and walks towards Gary's grave and flashes back to Gary telling him, I love you, in bed. They make passionate love in a very hot sex scene. Now we're back in the present and Terry sees Gary running through the cemetery. He runs towards Gary and the two walk away together. The end. With the film and the script, Simone had said the progression of the film slowly brings the main character out of the closet. And although I had fun saying Terry was creepy, I feel like his hiding about throughout the film is significant to the cultural zeitgeist that still surrounded being gay at the time. You were still hiding and it still wasn't fully accepted though progress had been made. All in all, Disamoni's storytelling, scene blocking, soundtracking, and overall mood setting is in full force in the idol. The idol is well paced, well edited, crafted, and beautifully photographed. The film can appeal to many of the viewer's senses, as well as their minds. When the film was edited and completed by Disamoni, who always did all the work in his films, he said it was the film he intended to make. He screened the film for the cast and crew and invited guests. Kevin Redding saw the film and was amazed by the final product. When the film opened, Redding went to see it with as many people as he could. Disamoni has said of the idol, that it was very personal to him since he was a firm believer in love he wanted to make a love story for homosexuals he wanted people to go to the theater and not only get hard but also feel something in their hearts tom Simone recalls a time running into kevin redding on the dance floor of the cc construction company a popular disco in the 80s based out of palm springs they exchanged hugs Well wishes, and glad that they were both happy and healthy. You can find crude copies of The Idol on the internet, but honestly, treat yourself to the DVD, or find it on Video On Demand on a website, watch it the way it was intended to be watched now that technology has given us the capability. I hope you two discover that Tom DeSimone's The Idol is timeless and would hold up against many mainstream movies from that time period. Jack Wrangler was born Jack Stillman on July 11, 1946, in Beverly Hills, California, to Robert Stillman, an independent film and television producer known for his credits on Rawhide and Bonanza, and his mother, Ruth Clark Stillman, who was a top model in New York and then became a dancer in Busby Berkeley musicals. Wrangler grew up the youngest of three children, having two sisters. They all grew up comfortably, well-mannered, cultured, and Presbyterian. As a child, under his real name, John Stillman, he began his acting career starring with America's tap-dancing sweetheart, Eleanor Powell, on the religious theme NBC series, The Faith of Our Children. As a young man, he grew up to enjoy the limelight, something that his father didn't like. Wrangler's father wanted a strong, rugged son, something he did not see in his own. He would encourage and push his son into sports, but it just wasn't something Wrangler wanted to do. As for girls, Wrangler tried dating and liked girls, but not enough to hold his attention. He didn't think that there was any, that you were gay or anything. You were just a kid starting to uh, discover himself sexually. My dad, in his wisdom, felt I better go to prep school. From the 8th to the 12th grade, I went to this place called St. George's. And I remember going to a little store, and there was a male magazine. And what did end up holding his attention were newly discovered physique magazines, which upon finding, Wrangler would order and hide away. He would then go on to major in theater in Northwestern University. After college, Wrangler spent seven years of his early career managing the windmill and country dinner theaters with the likes of Betty Hutton, Jane Russell, Yvonne De Carlo, Gail Storm, and Salmoneo. He was a good-looking man with talent, but despite that, he found it hard to get work as an actor in Hollywood. He did perform in a play called Special Friends, in which he played a former prostitute who becomes a bad go-go dancer in California. He also got small roles in films, but nothing memorable, except maybe for this line from The Bus is Coming. What in the hell are you doing here, honky? himself was a bartender and go-go dancer in West Hollywood. Then the other side of Hollywood came calling. On a trip to San Francisco, Wrangler appeared in a gay play in which he had to remove his shirt. Studio heads at Magnum Studio noticed and after the show he was offered a lot of money to do a loop called Ranch Dudes. It was heavily promoted and Wrangler was now in demand. His first gay porn film was called Eyes of a Stranger, released in 1970. In a matter of five years, Wrangler had made 88 features, appeared in countless photo layouts and did over 900 performance of his jack wrangler exclamation point live show and off-broadway play wrangler's charisma was evident from his acting chops to his sex scenes and was well known for his ability to deliver a money shot on cue which made him very sought after in the industry some of his best work can be seen in kansas city trucking company under the direction of joe gage and then under jack devoe with hot house sex machine and a night at the adonis Jack Wrangler was so popular in the mid to late 70s that he began to work in straight porn as well. The gay porn world was still very niche, but the heterosexual porn world was exploding with bigger money and bigger productions. The first time Jack Wrangler ever made love to a woman was in a film called The China Sisters. During an interview in 1985 with Terry Gross of NPR, Wrangler said that the crew knew it was Wrangler's first time with a woman and they cheered him on as he lost his heterosexual virginity. Most of it was funny because um, they were really cheering me on. You know, this is really like, boy, the kid's really coming into his own today. My son, you are a man. And all these people with, that had, the crew's always standing out the set with bagels and things. You know, they're always eating those people and standing there with their bagels and saying, yay, check. <laughs> the China Sisters, which would not fly by any means today, is a film structured around a gay guy who the titular characters make straight by the end of the film. From there, Wrangler would go on to star in other films, including The Devil and Miss Jones 2, the sequel to the mega-hit original The Devil and Miss Jones. While Wrangler was amassing acclaim for his work in the porn industry, his career in theater began to take shape. He co-starred in the play T-Shirts, with playwright and actor Robert Patrick in 1979. In 1985, Wrangler wrote the book for the musical I Love You, Jimmy Valentine, which starred Margaret Whiting, who Wrangler would be involved in a romantic relationship with and later marry. Following that, Wrangler would appear in a play called Soul Survivor, a comedy about a gay man whose lover dies of AIDS. In 1984, Wrangler wrote his autobiography and by the mid-1980s, Wrangler said goodbye to his Adele career after his wife, Margaret Whiting, demanded it and he appeared in his final porn film, Rising Star Wrangler considered himself close to asexual for a good amount of his career. He also didn't consider himself bisexual or straight. He considered himself gay, but he would never want to be in a relationship with another man due to what he considered competitiveness. With a woman, he said, you can compete, but from different points of view. With that in mind, let's talk about Jack Wrangler's relationship with Margaret Whiting. Wrangler met Margaret Whiting, a big band era singer whose hits included That Old Black Magic and Moonlight in Vermont, in 1976 at Ted Hook's onstage nightclub. After they met, Wrangler invited Whiting to his one-man show the next night. A romance would soon blossom between Wrangler and Whiting, who was 22 years his senior. Wrangler and Whiting were criticized for their relationship and Wrangler was accused of turning straight and entering the relationship for money. The early years of their relationship proved to be difficult and they both struggled with Wrangler's homosexuality. During a turning point in their relationship, Wrangler vowed to never be with another man while he was with Whiting and the couple wed in 1994. Of her relationship with Jack Wrangler, Margaret Whiting told People Magazine in May of 1987, Honestly, there's so much unhappiness in the world. If you can find someone who makes you happy, and you can make him happy, then come on, who cares? We're not hurting anybody. We're not doing anything wrong. We're enjoying each other. That's all. After leaving the porn industry, Wrangler predominantly occupied his time with Whiting's career and became an active part of the Manhattan cabaret scene. Wrangler was a master teacher at the Eugene O'Neill Cabaret Symposium in Waterford, Connecticut for several years in the early 1990s. During this period, he and his wife taught young students about the Great American Songbook at the Sundance Festival in association with the Johnny Mercer Foundation. Jack Wrangler was one of the first gay porn superstars of the golden era of gay porn. His muscular good looks and tousled blonde hair quickly brought him a great deal of attention on and off-screen. As Wrangler, he became an icon of the gay liberation movement. As Outcyclopedia, a gay-oriented online reference, wrote, Many gay men in the 70s and 80s cited Jack as an integral part of their coming-out process, as his against-the-stereotypes on-screen persona helped show that a man could be gay and still be a man. And while Wrangler was extremely popular within the gay community, he eventually fell in love with his wife, Margaret Whiting, the famous vocalist who was 22 years his senior. A lifelong smoker, Jack Wrangler died of complications of emphysema after a long illness on April 7, 2009. He was survived by his wife, Margaret, who passed away in 2011. Fun fact! Wrangler's father worked on the television show Bonanza, which starred a young Michael Landon. Michael Landon became an object of desire for a young Jack Wrangler, who, if he didn't know he was attracted to men, he knew at that moment. Wrangler would go on to recount that one day his father caught him in a walk-in closet um thinking about Michael Landon. You've been listening to Demystifying Gay Porn. I am your host, Ike Grande. Demystifying Gay Porn can be found on every podcast directory, as well as YouTube. You can reach me at Demystifying Gay Porn on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Telegram, Discord, Hive. And if you like what you're watching or listening to and want to be a part of the process, head over to patreon.com backslash Demystifying Gay Porn, where you can help support this podcast and YouTube channel so I can continue making content like the video or podcast you've just enjoyed. As always, don't forget to subscribe wherever you are. Give this video or podcast a like. Leave a comment anywhere letting me know what else you'd like me to cover. Once again, this is Demystifying Gay Porn. My name is Ike Grande. And if you watch gay porn, I've definitely helped you get off. Cheers.